1: Ten years ago, the face and the actions of this man, Eddie Hamer, were on the TV screens and the newspaper headlines throughout the world, because he was then doing what appeared to be the unforgivable thing. In
0: 1976, Eddie Hamer, a man from Kelowna, BC, did something unthinkable.
1: He was holding hostages in the Canadian embassy in Beirut, demanding the right to have justice in Canada.
0: Though Eddie was born in Lebanon, his fight had nothing to do with that country. His battle was with the government of British Columbia.
1: And like everybody else in the world, I thought, oh, that guy's out of his mind. Who the devil does he think he is?
0: Eddie Haymore blamed the B.C. government for the loss of his land an islet in the middle of Lake Okanagan called Rattlesnake Island.
1: To some, it's known as
2: Rattlesnake Island. To others, it's Ogopogo Island after the lake's legendary monster.
1: But for one of the valley's residents, Eddie Haymore, it will always be Eddie's island.
0: Eddie had just been released from a psychiatric hospital.
1: All experts agreed agreed that Haymore was suffering paranoia and that he had delusions. They concluded he believed he was being persecuted by government officials.
0: And while he was there, he came up with a plan to get his island back. Go to Lebanon, find some guns, find some men, and storm the Canadian embassy.
3: When I arrived in the reception area, there were the various visitors to the embassy and all of my staff uh, on the floor, and uh, several gunmen, including Eddie, uh, holding them hostage.
0: This is the story of Eddie Haymore and his quest for his island. It's one of the strangest stories in modern Canadian history. But the most peculiar part of it all is that Eddie Haymore was right. The long saga of Eddie Haymore is a story of obsession, about a man who became consumed by his dreams for a piece of land and about a government equally determined to stop him at any cost. Eddie Haymore has been called a lot of things in his life. Immigrant success story, kidnapper, terrorist, folk hero. He was all of these things, and so much more. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canada Land... This is Comments.
1: Going to Lebanon and holding up a Canadian embassy, holding people hostage, that is not a rational thing to do.
4: What is it? What can you do? If someone... Took your pride, your children, your earning, your soul, your body, store it away for twenty months, and for no absolute reason.
2: I got a random phone call in my early 20s, and I just answered the phone. And this guy said, hello, my name's Eddie Haymore. And in 1976, I took 34 people hostage at the Canadian embassy in Lebanon. And I said, hello, it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. That's Omar Mualim. I'm the author of Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas, I'm also a documentary filmmaker and journalist in Edmonton, mostly telling stories about Middle Eastern and Muslim issues, which is how I got to know Eddie. I profiled him for 18 Bridges magazine in 2013, but I've known him since 2006. What's funny is that he got my phone number from my mom. I guess my mom was totally okay with handing it over to a former hostage taker. Omar was writing
0: a film column at the time for the Canadian Arab News.
2: And Eddie, at that time, and really for most of the last few decades, has been seeking someone to turn his life story into a movie. And he thought that maybe I could do that. So for a couple of years, we had a, an interesting relationship where I was essentially ghostwriting his life story into a script.
0: The screenplay didn't come to much, but Omar has stayed in touch with Eddie in the years since. And Eddie's stories continue to fascinate him. Eddie was born in Lebanon and came to Canada as a young man.
2: Eddie is an adventurist. He always has been from a very early age. He is someone who has just sort of looked to live a life that's worth telling. And I think that when he had the opportunity to come to Canada, he took it because, you know, why not? It was interesting.
0: He came to live in Edmonton with almost no grasp of English and few prospects. That wasn't a problem for Eddie.
2: He was an entrepreneur, an opportunist, and just someone with boundless energy and imagination.
0: Eddie knew how to cut hair, so he tried to find himself a job.
2: The way that he tells it is that he went out looking for a job with two words written on a piece of paper, presumably by a family member. And he went door to door with this piece of paper that said, me barber.
0: Eventually, Eddie was offered a job by a Ukrainian barber in town.
2: According to Eddie, Eddie was just so good that the customers stopped going to his boss for haircuts. They only wanted Eddie, and so the guy had to let him go.
0: But Eddie was doing well for himself by that point, so he opened his own barber shop.
2: He brought over some relatives, and he called it the Four Haymores, And it just sort of grew and grew. It became a destination for Edmonton's elite to get their haircuts.
0: Through his barber shop, Eddie began to forge relationships with Edmonton's movers and shakers. And it's here that we first see Eddie's disregard for convention. Eddie decided to open a haircutting school for women.
2: You have to remember that at this time, men and women weren't even allowed to be in bars together. Bars had to close at a certain hour so that men would go home to their families and have dinner. So the idea of women cutting men's hair, you know, the barbershop being this very masculine place, the idea of allowing women to service men in that way was kind of unheard of. But he also knew that there was a little bit of a sex appeal to it. And so he just did it.
0: It wasn't long before Eddie was a wealthy man. Because of his hair college, his barber shop, and a number of real estate investments, he was living more than comfortably. And he was charming.
2: I would describe him as debonair. To this day, he refers to me as good-looking. Like, as like a nickname. Hey, good-looking. And he's still, like, attached to what was considered cool and fancy and charming in the 1950s, ballroom dancing, that kind of stuff. Eddie
0: got married to a local woman. And at the wedding, some of the guests included the lieutenant governor of Alberta, the mayors of Edmonton and Strathcona, and multiple cabinet ministers. From the outside, Eddie Haymore was the embodiment of the immigrant dream.
2: But then there's another side that only his family can attest to. His ex-wife's memoir. The title kind of tells you everything, Married to a Terrorist. It's an imperfect book, and problematic in its own right but the side of eddie that she tells there is quite disturbing to say the least she describes him as an incredibly emotionally and sometimes physically abusive person as very controlling someone who really restricted her life and when he could not get his way would sort of take his way forcefully
0: Some of the claims in the book are disputed by Eddie and the couple's children, but many are not.
2: The most disturbing story is one that neither of them will deny, which is that after he apparently learned that she was having an alleged affair, he kidnapped the kids and he took them to Lebanon under the guise that he was going to take them to the zoo.
0: His children were incredibly young at the time. And Eddie placed them in a boarding school in Lebanon, and barely even saw them.
2: One, I believe, was as young as five years old. His son Troy, who was just a few years older, had to look after his siblings, take care of them. To this day, he's very traumatized by it.
0: Eventually, his wife came to Lebanon and begged him to bring the children back. She promised to stay with him, despite the abuse he perpetrated. And Eddie agreed to return to Canada with the kids but they decided to get a fresh start and not return to Edmonton. Instead, they moved to Kelowna, B.C. And that decision would change the course of Eddie Haymore's life.
2: Eddie Haymore came to the Okanagan in 1970 you know, and yeah. fell in love with the rugged hills and clear blue waters that
0: reminded him of Lebanon. Here he found Rattlesnake Island, five acres of rock and scrub, But to Eddie, the site of his dream.
3: Kelowna was like a pretty small town. You know, it was a place that families from over B.C. and probably Canada would come and visit on their summer holidays. I'm Greg Crompton. I'm a filmmaker and I am the writer-director of Eddie's Kingdom.
0: Kelowna sits on the shore of Lake Okanagan, about four hours east of Vancouver.
3: It was, like, really hot. It was, like, 30 degrees a lot of time. There was, like, all these fun parks, like the Flintstones Park, a couple water slides, a game farm that you can go and see animals.
0: Greg grew up in Kelowna, and from a young age, he was familiar with the legend of Eddie Haymore.
3: It started when I was, like, six years old, I guess. My dad was in real estate, and so he came home one day and was like, yeah, I took an interesting guy to Rattlesnake Island. When
0: Eddie and his family moved to Kelowna, Rattlesnake Island soon became his obsession.
3: There's only two islands on Okanagan Lake. One is like a very insignificant one that I don't even know where it is. And then this other one, which is Rattlesnake Island. It's beautiful, but it's also kind of scrub rock and, you know, bits of like grass and a couple trees on it. But it's like kind of beautiful in the, this deserty kind of like rough way. Anyone who's in Kelowna or the Okanagan Valley kind of knows of this island.
2: Him being somewhat of a real estate mogul, he was looking for his next venture. He learned about this island, Rattlesnake Island, that was for sale.
0: Many people around Lake Okanagan thought that Rattlesnake Island was public land because of its proximity to Okanagan Lake Provincial Park. People used to take a boat over and have picnics.
2: But in fact, it was private land. He bought it for, he says, $10,000, and uh, immediately went about turning it into an amusement park, as one does with an island.
0: This became Eddie's dream, the grand vision that would dominate the next two decades of his life.
3: It was called Moroccan Shadu, and so it was kind of this theme park of kind of Middle Eastern different cultures kind of showcasing them to Canadians. And so, you know, there would be like horses pulling chariots around the island, there would be a camel that would have ice cream out, and this camel camel's like 30 feet tall, and like the belly of the camel would be ice cream.
0: Here's Eddie talking to the CBC's Fifth Estate about the ice cream camel in the 1980s.
4: So the children climb into his tummy and uh, peek in from his eyes and with the reverse telescope, even they have the music in his mouth and even the garbage disposal in uh, his rear end. You know, it's something that for adults to laugh at and for the kids to enjoy. I w- wasn't for a profit. I-, I, want, I want a pleasure and I want a heritage and I want the children of mine to enjoy two cultures, my own and my children as a Canadian culture.
2: You know, I have to say, as an as Arab Canadian, as someone who is proud of his Arab heritage, I would have loved to see this Arab-themed theme park exist anywhere in this country. I think that's really cool.
3: There would be a big tent where they'd show all these, like, you know, Middle Eastern movies, and then you would have an underwater Ogopogo that you could get in a submarine and check out. It was just this, like, wild kind of, like, amazing fun park, in a way. Less rides, more cultural, that people could go to and just kind of, like, have a blast and have a great time. Eddie's
0: plan to build the Moroccan shedu became the talk of Peachland, the local community off of Lake Okanagan. Some people were really supportive of Eddie, including Peachland's mayor, but others thought the whole idea was outlandish, and they didn't like Eddie
3: Haymore. He's like this Lebanese guy who's kind of dressed to the nines with this beautiful white suit and all this gold chains, and he's just like kind of like doing the businessman thing and and it rubbing people a bit of the wrong way. Based on the fact that I lived there, and I think just talking to people, there was a bit of an undertone of this guy is from somewhere else, doesn't look like us, and what's he doing here? And there's this Middle Eastern thing going on this island.
2: People feared that it would be a desecration to the land. But there was also people who looked at this fast talking entrepreneur in what was described <laughs> by one man as a zoot suit and looked at the plans and thought that this is this is a hustle. Right. You know, this was the monorail man before the monorail man. But then there was also, I think, all wrapped up in that xenophobia. For sure. I mean, you, you have to remember that this was the this was the 1970s We're not far removed from the 1967 Arab-Israeli war and the Palestinian terrorist hijackings and resistance that followed that. And, you know, of course, the media was highly biased against Arabs at that time. And I think that there was a lot of distrust of someone like him
0: one of Eddie's main antagonists in Peachland was a man named Des Lone. Here he is speaking to the CBC.
4: He came here in a zoot suit right out of Alcap, and uh, he introduced himself to the audience as, I'm Eddie Haymore." I want you to remember that as more hay, more hay. That is
2: more hay for you, more hay for me. We are in this together, and I'm, I'm here to make it for you. That's what he said. And you thought... I thought, how ridiculous can you get? That is, I thought, here we are (laughs) with
4: another exploiter.
0: But Rattlesnake Island belonged to Eddie, and he felt that he could do with it what he wanted. He began to build the Moroccan Shadu, despite the opposition from some of the locals.
2: Now, you may have in your mind the image of a large construction crew putting together This 30-foot camel and these concrete pyramids and a mini golf course and a big stone pit and cutting down trees and all that stuff. It was really just this one sort of carpenter, odd job man named Peter. I think people called him Peter Rabbit.
0: Eddie gave him a place to stay and a decent wage, though it wasn't exactly a professional operation. But Eddie soon began to hit roadblocks. Serious ones. He couldn't get permits for sewage facilities on the island. He couldn't get building permits. Health inspectors came down upon him.
2: Essentially, they tried to thwart him with red tape. And when they failed to find the appropriate measures within the provincial or local bylaws, they created new red tape and tried to force it through as quickly as possible in order to stop him.
0: Worst of all, The island was rezoned so that basically nothing could be built upon it.
2: So when he first meets opposition, he does what he does, which is try to sort of disarm people with his charm and try to convince people that this is going to be a boon to everyone in the community. But when that fails and as his money starts to dwindle, that's when he starts to take a serious and very different course.
0: It was around this time that Eddie Haymore becomes convinced that the B.C. government is conspiring against him. At the time, the premier of British Columbia was a man named W.A.C. Bennett, though a lot of people called him Wacky Bennett. He's still the longest-serving premier in the province's history and the founder of a dynasty of B.C. politicians. And he also happened to be the M.L.A. for the Kelowna area where Eddie was living. After Eddie's finances were drained by the Moroccan shadou, and his wife finally left him for good, his house burned down. And Eddie came to believe that it was the premier and the provincial government that were personally thwarting his dreams and ruining his life.
2: And I think that, you know, at that point, he really started to feel like there was nothing to lose. One of the first things that he did is he held this press conference for media. And I think only one local reporter showed up. And during that press conference, he said that he would drink human blood and eat human flesh to mark a Black Day for Canada if he could not get his island back. And I think that's probably when people realized that Eddie's not okay.
0: Eddie decided if the government wasn't going to let him build his amusement park, then he would sell Rattlesnake Island to the government. Here's Eddie on the Jack Webster show years later.
4: I came uh, looking for a settlement, and they stonewalled me and start pushing me around and round and round.
0: The government wouldn't buy it for a price that Eddie considered fair. It was around then that Greg Crompton's dad, the realtor, gave Eddie a lift to Rattlesnake Island.
3: On the boat ride over there, Eddie was kind of telling him about how he was going to send letter bombs to people and this and that. And so then my dad's like, you know what, I don't think I'm the realtor for you.
0: Now that his wife and kids had left him, Eddie was alone in Kelowna and becoming obsessed with his violent revenge fantasies. He made a new friend, however, a man named Ralph. Eddie told Ralph all about how the BC government had screwed him over and how he was going to get his vengeance.
2: He talked about having, you know, having the ability to procure some grenades and other sort of military-grade weapons from the United States. And that he had all these political connections in the Middle East that he was, you know, planning to employ to get his island back.
0: Eddie, with Ralph's encouragement, decided to go back to Lebanon. He was able to secure letters of support for his cause from some fairly important politicians, including a former Lebanese prime minister.
2: And then he came back to Canada. Before he told anyone that he was back, Ralph Shouten showed up at his door. This, of course, is according to Eddie. And Eddie was surprised because he hadn't told anyone that he was back from Lebanon.
0: And that is when Eddie started to suspect what you might have already guessed, that Ralph Shelton was a police informant. Eddie told Ralph that while he was abroad, he had procured a number of letter bombs that he was going to send to his enemies, including Des Lone, his wife, and Premier W.A.C. Bennett. Eddie got Ralph to get him some envelopes, Then he filled them up with the alleged letter bombs. And that is when the police burst in. But the RCMP was in for a surprise.
2: When they opened the letters, they found in fact those letters of support from the dignitaries in the Middle East that were like, Eddie says, wrapped in cloth to sort of like give them weight.
0: According to Eddie, there were no letter bombs. But that didn't stop the police or the prosecution. Eddie had been threatening the premier and numerous other people. They planned to throw the book at him. Eddie was taken to jail and kept confined for months. Here he is again on The Jack Webster Show.
4: I went to the court about 46 times. Forty? Forty-six. They stripped me completely naked about over 90 times. So twice every time they take me to court, they have to take my clothes off one way.
0: Eddie was initially charged with over 30 offenses. But as the months dragged on, those charges were dropped one by one. By the end, the crown was left with a single charge against Eddie Haymore: possession of an illegal weapon.
2: That weapon was brass knuckles, child-sized brass knuckles, which he had brought back from Lebanon as a gift for his son. And I know that sounds crazy, but I lived in Lebanon for a little bit as a child, and that is totally the kind of toy that a child might have. So I, I completely believe that.
0: The many months in jail had broken down Eddie he was ready to be done with it all. While he was on trial, he sold Rattlesnake Island to the government for far less than he wanted. He was prepared to plead guilty to that single charge. And because he didn't have a prior criminal record, he would have likely gotten off with a fine. But the prosecutors pulled something completely unprecedented. They refused to accept Eddie's guilty plea. They told the court that they believed that Eddie Haymore was innocent of the single charge against him. For reason of insanity.
2: I've never found another example where this was the case. Usually it's the defendant who makes the claim that they are not guilty for for reasons of insanity. And it's the prosecutors who prove that, in fact, they are guilty.
0: If they had allowed Eddie to plead guilty, there's almost no chance he would have served any more time in jail but by stating he was insane, they could lock him up for as long as they pleased. Here's Eddie's lawyer, Sidney Simons, speaking to the CBC years later.
4: The trial was decided upon the basis of what would best suit the immediate needs of the community, not the legality or illegality or sanity or insanity of Eddie Haymore or his acts. But that seemed to be the one the the avenue I think that Uh, gave the greatest hold on him was the possibility that he might be detained there for a long, long time.
0: The judge ruled that Eddie Haymore was indeed criminally insane, and soon he was shipped off to the notorious Riverview Psychiatric Hospital. For his documentary, Eddie's Kingdom, Greg Crompton spent three full days interviewing Eddie Haymore, And he says that it was when Eddie spoke about being sent to Riverview that he seemed the most vulnerable.
3: In his voice, you can see how, how to this day, how freaked out and how frightened he was when he went into this hospital. Maybe he is kind of like he's got his unique, you know, peculiarities, but, but he's not, he you know, doesn't need to be locked up in a psychiatric hospital. It totally shook him and totally freaked him out.
0: Riverview was a place where some of British Columbia's most infamous killers ended up. And all of the doctors and the psychiatrists were convinced that Eddie was a paranoid schizophrenic. They thought he was experiencing delusions that the government was after him.
3: It almost feels like one floor of the cuckoo's nest or something from his perspective.
0: Eddie was institutionalized for 11 months.
2: And that's where he started to plot his revenge.
0: During Arts and Crafts, Eddie created a sophisticated diorama of an urban development.
2: To everyone there, it seemed consistent with his kooky personality. There he goes again, creating something else, creating another, you know, development that will never get its way off the ground. And in fact, he was being very clever.
0: From the window of the psychiatric hospital... Eddie had noticed that there was a steel company down the road. And when Eddie was finally freed from Riverview, he paid the place a visit.
2: He cleaned himself up and he brought it to the president of the steel company and claimed to be a Lebanese entrepreneur who wanted to represent him in Lebanon and develop this and that he had all the connections to do it in Lebanon.
0: Eddie showed him his diorama and the company president was duly impressed. He hired Eddie to represent his interests in Lebanon. So off Eddie went, back to Lebanon, the country of his birth. But Eddie had no intention of doing business there. He had far more serious plans. Eddie was going to hold the Canadian embassy hostage until they gave him his island back. He began by doing reconnaissance.
2: Allegedly, he rented an apartment across from the embassy and started sort of stalking the Charged Affairs, essentially the ambassador to the Middle East uh, region.
0: His job representing the steel company gave him the cover he needed to make frequent trips to the embassy and scout it out. And then he began to search around for guns and for men, which in Lebanon at the time was not as difficult of a task as you might assume.
2: You have to remember that what was going on in Lebanon, Lebanon was basically teetering on civil war. It
0: was 1976. Lebanon was on the verge of a catastrophic conflict. Various militias affiliated with the country's many ethnic and religious groups roamed the streets. Clashes between Maronite Christians, Shia and Sunni Muslims, Druze and Palestinian nationalists were increasingly common.
2: And so it was very easy to have connections with militarized young men. You know, if they weren't in the army, then they belonged to some sort of militia representing one of the various religious factions or political factions in the country.
0: Eddie recruited some young relatives of his to his cause and got a hold of some automatic weapons.
2: And he basically put together, like, I don't know, a little resistance army. And they, they plotted a siege of the embassy.
0: And on February 23rd, 1976, they made their move.
2: They stormed in. He knew the building very well. He knew where the different offices were. He knew what happened on the various floors. He knew how to split everyone up, shut down the stairwells. And they took somewhere between a dozen and 34 hostages.
0: News reports conflict on the exact numbers. Eddie had four demands that he wanted met in order to release the hostages.
3: And the demands are going to be, get my island back, bring my kids to Lebanon, give me a bunch of money that I was, because of all this red tape and all these things I got screwed over, and bring the psychiatrist to Lebanon and tell the world that I'm not crazy.
0: Waving around his AK-47, Eddie Haymore demanded to meet with the charged affair, Alan Sullivan. Here's Sullivan speaking to the CBC.
3: When I arrived in the reception area, there were the various visitors to the embassy and all of my staff uh, on the floor and uh, several gunmen, including Eddie, uh, holding them hostage. Sullivan came out of his office. However, he came out, he came out. And Eddie's standing there with his guns and with people, you know, hands up, kind of hostage style. And then he calls Sullivan over. Sullivan goes over there, and everyone's like, you know, it's kind of like, what's going to happen now? And then Sullivan says that Eddie just gives him a big kiss.
0: In typical Eddie Haymore style, he had done exactly what no one expected him to do.
3: And that totally broke the tension. And Sullivan's like, yeah, I thought, you know, everyone was like, just laughing, you know, it calmed things down a little bit.
0: While things were calm inside, or about as calm as a hostage taking can be, outside the embassy, Eddie was a breath away from igniting a civil war. The various groups of armed men that were roaming Beirut's streets all converged on the Canadian
2: embassy. So you had all these different militias jockeying for control of the situation, you know, largely just to show that they were the ones that should be in charge, right? That they are the ones who can protect Lebanon. And that included apparently Yasser Arafat, who was the leader of the PLO, and was operating out of Lebanon. And as they brought their tanks and their guns and surrounded the embassy and were sort of jockeying for control, people started to fear that this was going to be the linchpin for the civil war. That at that point everyone realized was was inevitable. It was chaos.
3: I kept receiving telephone calls from a Syrian colonel who was trying somehow to keep peace uh, between these rival factions, uh, telling me to wind this thing up as quickly as possible because otherwise the Lebanese war was going to break out around the Canadian embassy.
0: At one point, Yasser Arafat, the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, allegedly offered to send in his militants to deal with Eddie, though luckily that never happened. As Lebanon was on the brink of exploding around them, Eddie Haymore and Alan Sullivan negotiated. And finally, they got a deal.
3: After nine hours, the final agreement was that the Canadian government will do everything in their power to help Eddie. That's all. He didn't get his island back. He didn't get his kids. He didn't get all the things that he, like, stormed an embassy with AK-47s and put his life on the line... Because, like, I don't know, I'd imagine you might think you might die in that scenario. And he just came up with a letter saying, we'll help you.
0: Eddie's demands weren't met. But Omar says that Eddie still got exactly what he wanted.
2: This is going to sound strange, but Eddie's a showman. And so his goal was to put on a little bit of a show to get attention, but to do something that was so dramatic and extreme that all the cameras would point to him. You have to remember that during his whole struggle in British Columbia with the island, it wasn't really ever national news. He wanted to get their attention and get the federal government to force the provincial government to give him his island back.
0: Eddie and his men stood down. But one of the strangest parts of this whole story is that Eddie Haymore faced almost no consequences for his actions?
2: Eddie is extremely proud of this. This is his magnum opus. It's how he introduced himself to me. In a way, it is an incredible, you know, albeit deranged achievement. I mean, who takes a government building and government employees hostage and gets away with it? Just gets to live their life, doesn't serve a day in jail.
0: Eddie only received a small fine from a Lebanese court, and because his crimes took place in Lebanon, he was allowed back into Canada without facing any charges.
2: One of the things that he likes to say is that he brought the Canadian government to its knees.
0: Eddie's siege was over, but his fight against the government of British Columbia continued unabated.
2: He came back to the Okanagan Valley And he actually moved right into Peachland, and he was kind of celebrated as a little bit of a folk hero by some people.
0: Eddie saved up enough money to hire a lawyer and take the government to court to try to get Rattlesnake Island back. Remember, he had sold it to British Columbia at the same time that they were placing him in a mental institution.
3: You say this guy is insane... But then you buy the island off him and you get him to sign a contract. So it's got to be one or the other. It's either the contract's void or he was not insane.
0: And as he sued the B.C. government, his lawyers and journalists from the CBC's Fifth Estate discovered something sinister. During the 1970s, when Eddie was trying to build his Moroccan theme park on Rattlesnake Island, he couldn't get any permits. The island was rezoned, and Eddie came to believe that the entirety of the British Columbian government, including the premier, W.A.C. Bennett, were all conspiring against him. Everyone called him paranoid. His claims got him sent to an asylum, but Eddie Haymore was right the government, going all the way up to the Premier's office, had been illegally conspiring against Eddie the whole
1: time. This is the first time in all my reporting in British Columbia for nearly 40 years that I have seen such a condemnation of a conspiracy by bureaucrats and politicians against an individual who undoubtedly was held up to ridicule and contempt at a time when he was later proven to be right and very nearly justified in everything he did because if he hadn't taken the hostages in Beirut, not even a partial successful conclusion would have come about. It's quite unbelievable the things they did to him. Lost his family, lost his sanity, lost his liberty for 21 months, lost his reputation, lost his business, lost his home, and of course he lost the island.
0: Eddie's primary antagonist in Peachland, Des Lone, was Premier W.A.C. Bennett's brother-in-law. And internal documents showed that the Premier's office had ordered multiple ministries to do whatever it took to make sure Eddie's amusement park was never built.
2: Eddie, for years, had been saying that the government was conspiring against him. That it was not him just, you know, bending the rules that in fact he was going by the rules, but they were taking illegal measures to thwart him. And it was so easy to dismiss him as this, you know, flamboyant, larger-than-life personality who maybe had a little bit of a shaky grip on reality. It was easy to dismiss that guy as delusional. Well, it turns out that that paranoid delusion was 100% true.
0: Eddie won the lawsuit, but he still didn't get his island back. Instead, the courts ordered the BC government to pay him about half a million dollars in total compensation. He used the money to build Castle Haymore, a giant Middle Eastern themed bed and breakfast across the lake from Rattlesnake Island.
3: So it's like this B&B with this like flight of stairs off the highway that goes up. And then there's all these kind of arches that you kind of walk through. And then, you know, you get into the main restaurant area and there's like tons of tables, maybe seats like 40, 50 people. And then you have all these like, you know, little rooms. And then there's Eddie, you know, kind of like over all of this, like delivering his stories to these people who are there for dinner or for staying the night.
2: Outside of it, he built a slightly larger-than, you know life-size statue of himself, grimacing and pointing at the island. It wasn't just a bed and breakfast, it was kind of a museum to himself and to his story.
0: Eddie went on to write a book about himself. He called it "From Nut House to Castle." Today, Castle Haymore still stands. But Eddie doesn't own it any longer. It's now owned by the municipality of Peachland. And when Omar Muallam went to stay there, his roommates were outpatients from the local psychiatric hospital.
2: And it was like the title of his book, From Nut House to Castle, had been reversed and realized. And it was just it just added another strange, strange layer to this whole story where you think something is completely made up, that it is fictionalized for the sake of a great story, but then it just kind of turns out to be true.
0: His statue isn't there any longer, and most of the remnants of Moroccan Shadu, including the pyramid, are gone.
3: There's still remnants on the island of it, and there's a few like mini-golf holes still that Eddie wanted to build. Like, he built a nine-hole course on it. And so, you know, you can go play a couple holes, which is awesome. It's kind of, like, dilapidated or kind of breaking down crumbling apart. But it's still there.
0: Today, Eddie Haymore lives in Edmonton. His relationships with most of his children are strained, and he's still obsessed. But with what depends on who you ask. In Greg's documentary, Eddie's Kingdom... Eddie continues to pressure the government to give back his island. He calls the premier's office and sends letters, but gets no responses.
3: He has kind of just left his family. And he's just like, I'm obsessed with this five acre piece of rock. And it's beautiful and all, but it's what has got to him. He's kind of on his own now. And he's just like so, so captivated by the thing that got away from him. You kind of lost the focus of what's important in your life. And and it's a little, in a way, sad.
0: But he isn't sure to what extent Eddie was performing for the cameras. He is a consummate showman, after all. Omar says that in all the years he's known Eddie, he's never really spoken about wanting the island back.
2: To me, I thought it was performative. It was uh, good drama. He's a master storyteller. Eddie has a great sense of narrative.
0: Omar says that Eddie has been consumed with another project the last few decades.
2: When I knew him and when I, when I had a, a pretty consistent relationship with him, you know, we would maybe talk or meet every couple of months. His obsession was always getting the life rights of his story sold for a movie. That's what it was about. He wanted Ben Affleck to play him because apparently Ben Affleck has like a modicum of of Arab heritage.
0: We got in touch with Eddie Haymore for this episode. And my co-producer Jordan Cornish spoke to him on the phone a few times. And while they were on the phone, Eddie was quick to bring up his desire for a Hollywood adaptation. Eddie was excited to talk to us and we scheduled an interview. But unfortunately, it was cancelled at the last minute. Eddie is 91 years old. And what was clear from our brief conversation with him is that he continues to be obsessed with the legend of Eddie Haymore. It's safe to say that there are few people like Eddie Haymore. He is a man of extremes
2: Eddie to me represents the best and worst of us the best of us are people who are so driven and self motivated we have this ability in us to not just imagine something grand for ourselves but actually go out and achieve it against all odds and to overcome really big obstacles but he also represents hubris the worst kind of hubris the worst kind of self-absorption he is certainly not the hero that he thinks he is but he is an anti-hero and he is a sympathetic person because you know what he was put through nobody should have to ever experience it really does reveal just the darkest side of the state that they would be completely okay with breaking a man breaking his soul breaking him mentally that they would be fine with that just to procure some land for the crown.
0: That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Omar Mualim, Greg Crompton, the CBC's Fifth Estate, the late Jack Webster, and many, many others. If you want to know more about Eddie Haymore's story, go check out Greg's documentary, Eddie's Kingdom, and Omar's piece in 18 Bridges called The Kingdom of Hamor. We'll include links to both in our show notes. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLand.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Lola Oname. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer.